For marketing agencies and social media managers looking to prove the value of their work, I've got something special for you. Agora Pulse is not only Social Media Examiner's tool of choice as an all-in-one social media management tool, it also allows you to track the traffic, conversion, and revenue from every social post, comment, and private message. Learn how to prove your social media ROI with a free training or a free trial by visiting agorapulse.com SME today. Again, agorapulse.com SME. Welcome to the Social Media Marketing Podcast, helping you navigate the social media jungle. And now, here is your host, Michael Stelzner. Hello, hello, hello. Thank you so much for joining me for the Social Media Marketing Podcast, brought to you by Social Media Examiner. I'm your host, Michael Stelzner, and this is the podcast for marketers and business owners who want to know what works with social media. Today, I'm going to be joined by Brooke Sellis, and we're going to explore how to build stronger connections with your social marketing content. If you find that you're regularly publishing on the social platforms, but it's just not getting the kind of response that you want, and you're really struggling to develop a super loyal community, I think you're going to find today's interview absolutely fascinating. By the way, I am at Stelzner on Instagram and at Mike underscore Stelzner on Twitter. Also, if you're new to this podcast, follow this show so you don't miss any of our future content. Let's transition over to this week's interview with Brooke Sellis. Helping you to simplify your social safari. Here is this week's expert guide. Today, I'm very excited to be joined by Brooke Sellis. If you don't know who Brooke is, she's the founder and CEO of B Squared Media, an agency that helps mid to large sized brands connect, converse, and convert via social media. She's the author of the brand new book, Conversations That Convert. Brooke, welcome to the show. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. So many C's in there, you know, so conversations, connections. I'm kind of a fan of alliteration, if you couldn't tell. Yeah, absolutely. Well, today, Brooke and I are going to explore how to build stronger connections with social media content. But before we go there, Brooke, I would love to hear your story since this is your first time on the show. How did you get into social marketing and start wherever you want to start? Let's hear the story. Awesome. Well, I took a very non-linear path and I actually got started with social media when I was in a nonprofit job. So back a very, very long time ago, I won't say how old I am, but you can probably guess. In my early 20s, I decided to go work in nonprofit for the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation. One of my sisters has cystic fibrosis. So we've been, you know, involved with the charity for a very long time, loved to volunteer and just decided like, hey, why not get a job there? And while I was there, I was tasked with figuring out how to get young people involved with the charity because typically our donors were a much older subset of, of, of people. They were connected in some way to CF directly. And they really wanted me to try to figure out basically how to be a marketing and salesperson and get younger people involved with the charity. So I thought long and hard about it. And, you know, Facebook was around at the time. But this was very early. This was like 2006. So very early on, there weren't Facebook pages, there was that it wasn't advertising, we just had profiles. And I started a young professionals committee of young people, like-minded young people. And we decided to use Facebook to have an event that we knew young people would love, which involved beer. <laughs> That's how you get young people's attention, right? 100%. 
and old people. <laughs> yes. Well, beer is a, a, yeah, a national sign of welcome all. Anyhow, so we used that Facebook page. And keep in mind, this was actually a profile at the time. It was not a page to recruit over 7,500 people to attend our first year event. It was Pub Crawl. And we ended up making over $60,000 for the event, which is about 12 times what a first-time event normally makes for the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation. So this little seed was planted in my head of, wow, there's something to Facebook. It's more than just what we're making it out to be. Like There's a business thing happening here. A few years later, when the bottom fell out in 2009, I left a nonprofit. I went back to school. I did my undergraduate thesis work on social media and how businesses can use it to build relationships with people and make money, convert. Um, And then that won a bunch of awards. I went to present that at the Capitol, State Capitol in Harrisburg. And then essentially from there, started my company, B Squared Media. So it's kind of been a whirlwind, but it all started with that pub crawl for a nonprofit. Who would have thought that beer would lead to this, right? What year did you start your agency? 2012. So we're 10 years in. We just turned 10 actually this May. So tell us a little bit about what B Squared does. And well, actually, when you started the agency back in 12, 2012, what was it like back then? And what were you doing back then? And tell us a little bit of that story. Yeah, it was really different, obviously, in 2012. If you've been in the game for a while, you know it's it's changed quite a bit. It changes a lot. I think change is constant with what we do. And I thought I was going to come in and be the person who helped people with their strategy, build that for them, and then kind of pass it along and move on. And what I found within literally the first six months of owning the business was the problem wasn't really with strategy. The problem was more in the implementation. So my very first client was a fintech company, and they are actually the company who put the cashless cabs in New York City. And they took the strategy. They were happy with the strategy. And I got a call from them like six weeks after we delivered the strategy. And they said, Brooke, everything's great. You're great. We cannot keep up. Like, we just can't keep up with posting all this content and talking to the community. Can you just come do it for us? (laughs) And I was like, well, I mean, I guess I could. And I did. And then literally from there, pivoted from delivering strategies to actually delivering done-for-you services. So that's literally what we do today. Companies come in, they hand us their social pages, and we literally do it all for them as an extension of their team. What does that normally involve? What doesn't it involve? We help with content. We build out content calendars for the client. We obviously post to all the different platforms. We help them come up with the strategy and ideas behind the different platforms that they want to use. And then we manage the community seven days a week, 365 days a year. So weekends and holidays, we're there answering questions as the front line for our clients. And then obviously, We do all of the reporting, all of the metrics, all of the KPI measurements or key performance indicator measurements, and then generally just kind of advise them on how to continue to connect, converse, and convert with their audiences through social media. So the book, Conversations That Convert, is just about, as of this recording, launching, or where are we at with that book? Just about to launch. I should have turned my pages in yesterday. Fun fact, I got delayed in Houston, so I lost a full day of work. So they're going in tomorrow. And within like, I don't know, 48 hours or so, I should have a book. So by the time this comes out, the book will be out. Yeah. And for those that are listening, we're recording this in the middle of June. So, and it comes out, I believe in the middle of July. So conversations that connect, 
conversations that connect, how to connect, converse, and convert through social media listening and social media customer care. So it's really just about how to make those connections in the appropriate way, because really, you know, I hate to be the bearer of bad news, and I definitely don't want to be a Debbie Downer, but a lot of brands get it wrong when it comes to connecting with the right people. Yeah. So let's talk about a little bit about social connections. There's a lot of people listening right now that have, there's some that are new, there's some that have been at this for a long time, like you and me. And it feels like since I started in 2009, when I started Social Media Examiner and it sounds like 2008 was when you kind of got into this business. Back then, community was very much a big deal because we didn't have video, we didn't have social audio, we didn't even have images, I don't think, in, in the beginning. It was all text, right? So along the way, it feels like it was very much um, about in, interacting and engaging with people um, and creating eventually content that somehow connects with people. But there's still a lot of people listening right now that are just scheduling stuff and forgetting about it. And there's still people that believe in automation solutions and all these other kinds of things. And for them, it's just a box that they tick. What do you want to say to people that maybe do not understand the importance of social connections and why building these connections on the social platforms is so important? Yeah, well, I love that you said that because it was about community. And I think that we hit that wave at the right time with the, with the nonprofit because that's exactly what we were doing on that Facebook profile. We were building a community of people. We were talking about cystic fibrosis. We were talking about our relationships with people who had cystic fibrosis. We were talking about our relationship with beer. So it was very much a community before it was anything else, before it became a, you know, a conversion event for the sales of the event. And I think with the advent and all of the cool advances that we've had through social media, we've kind of gotten away from that community, right? It's become more about fancy, shiny content or amazing videos. And we've really kind of pulled away from the connection piece, which you really can't converse and convert. And if that North Star of yours is to have a community, you can't build that either without that connection piece. And so I think we're kind of skipping to the end, right? I, I understand that marketers are very impatient and obviously businesses are too. We all have budgets. We all have goals we have to make, but we can't skip to the end. If we want to do it correctly, we have to start with the connection piece, which is so critical to building those audiences who will then converse, convert, and hopefully remain loyal to the brand. Yeah, I think it's really important because in this short attention span era that we're in, and it's only going to get shorter because there's just so many things distracting all of us, whether we're ADHD or not, which I'm not, but I feel like I am sometimes because everything is, is screaming for my attention. It seems that with the right kind of content, we can create connections or signals to people that attract them a little bit to us. Now, before we go there, I want to talk about what so many of us are getting wrong with our content because mm -hmm. to be intellectually honest, I think so many marketers picked up some tips in 2012, 2013, 2014, and they've been doing the same thing ever since. Right. And what I would love to focus on is what do you see that marketers are doing wrong? What are some of the mistakes that marketers are making? Let's start exploring that a little bit because I think 
some of the audience is going to say, they're going to raise their hand and say, uh, that's us. <laughs> I know. And that's okay. I want people to understand that in the book and just be as a person, I'm not here to tell you that you're doing it wrong. I think a lot of us have been doing it wrong. I can raise my hand and say I was doing it wrong for a long time as well. I think really we have to just remember that at the end of the day, we're emotional beings. We're humans. We actually buy things based on emotion, not on logic. If you look at some of the neuroscience research that's out there, and I won't get too far down that rabbit hole, but we buy based on emotion. And only after we've made the purchase, do we kind of back it up with logic, right? Which is why there is such a thing as buyer's remorse. So if we know that we make buying decisions emotionally, right? And ultimately, that's what marketers are probably using social media for. Not always, but a lot of times it is to help with revenue. Then you need to understand that you need more emotional content. And this is what most brands get wrong. And I realize this is not as easy as what I'm about to say. But most brands live in what I call cliche and fact-based content. So cliche means just that. It's not adding anything to the conversation. Think of like water cooler talk or elevator talk. Facts are great and they have a place, but all factual content, as I'm sure you're starting to understand, if if your wheels are turning at all, can also be very boring, right? It's not doing anything on an emotional level. Where brands start to move that needle and actually build relationships and help move people towards that emotional state is through opinions and feelings content which you see very little of, only the very best brands, I think, are using opinions and feelings well with their content. So I want to zoom in on this cliche stuff and the facts-based stuff, just because I think so many people need to understand really what you mean by this. So can you give some examples of cliche content and can you give some examples of facts-based content just so people in their mind can go from this abstract concept to understanding really what you mean by it? Certainly. So when you think of content, right? So the, the undergraduate thesis that I did was it's on the social penetration theory. Terrible name, brilliant concept. But essentially, it says the way we build relationships is through self-disclosure. And there's four levels of self-disclosure with cliches and facts being number one and two. You don't build relationships until you get to three and four opinions and feelings. So a cliche piece of content, I'll give you an example that's in the book. It's from Pro Flowers, which is a, a company that you know you can order flowers to be delivered to someone through. They put out a post that said, you have to stop and smell the roses. And they had a a picture of, you know, one of their bouquets, which, okay, sure, that's great. But it's cliche. And it's cliche because stop and smell the roses on an emotional level, it, it doesn't really strike me. They're not doing anything to move that needle. They're not just really disclosing any information as the brand. So another way we build relationships is through finding values that are similar. So I don't know anything about ProFlower's values by them telling me to stop and smell the roses and they have this picture of, of a bouquet, right? It's just it's just cliche. It doesn't do anything to move the needle. It might catch my attention, but it probably won't. You can already hear the marketers in the conference room saying, well, I think this is a great idea, <laughs> right? Uh, yes. And it probably fell flat, right? It probably didn't really create the kind of engagement they were hoping for is my guess, right? The post did not get a, a lot of engagement, as I'm sure you can guess. And why would it? I mean, we are, like you said in the beginning, we are inundated with content. Our attention spans are being pulled in 40 different directions in any given second of any day, unless we're asleep. But if you're like me, it's still being pulled in those directions, right? So you really have to have something that not only makes that person stop scrolling, 
uh, makes them want to connect, want to hit that like button or that follow button so that they can see more of your content and decide if your brand aligns with their core personal values. So cliches just won't cut it. Talk to me about the facts-based content just so we understand what you mean by that. So fact-based content would be factual content about your brand. So let's say B Squared Media, we have a new service coming out and we put out a post on social media that says, hey, friends, we're releasing a new social media mystery shop, which we are. A social media mystery shop. Oh, that sounds intriguing. Okay, keep going. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And we put factual little bullet points about what that service means. And then we probably have a call to action that says, hey, and if you want to learn more, click this link, right? We're all very familiar with this content because we all do it. I'm guilty of this too. It's factual, but the social penetration theory says that to be a self-disclosure, it has to be unknown. So if I post that the first time, that's a true self-disclosure. If I keep posting it, which we do as marketers, right? Part of our job is to get those click-through rates onto our websites or landing pages or whatnot. It's not a self-disclosure anymore. It becomes just fact-based content that isn't doing anything to move the relationship forward. Let's explore this phrase you've used a couple of times, which is self-disclosure. Now, obviously, self implies individual. You're using self in the case of a business, right? So you're, you're really defining Define what self-disclosure is a little bit and why it's so important. I think that might be valuable. So a self-disclosure typically, exactly, means from a personal point of view, you are disclosing information about yourself. So Michael and I meet. We're at Social Media Examiner's big conference, Social Media Marketing World. We meet in the hallway and you're like, hey, I'm Mike. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I know exactly who you are. I've been following you for years. I'm so excited to meet you. And you say, well, tell me a little bit about yourself. And I say, well, I'm from Texas and I'm always searching for the best Tex-Mex, right? I'm giving you a self-disclosure about. Ah, okay. And if you're like, oh my God, I love Tex-Mex. I'm always looking for the best Tex-Mex. Then we might connect on that little piece of information. And as we connect on these little tiny, I mean, I'm talking micro pieces of, of you're constantly reading those self-disclosures from people and deciding if you want to go further. And essentially, that's what the best brands are doing. They're putting out little pieces of micro self-disclosures and self-disclosures in that aspect, meaning from the brand, right? What are their brand core values? How do they feel about such and such? What's their opinion on this or that? And then you are deciding as a consumer whether or not you connect with that and whether or not you align with that and if you want to move forward with the relationship with that brand based on those disclosures. Okay, this is intriguing. So... If the problem is that many of us are putting out cliche content that just isn't connecting and seems to be riding some sort of cultural wave or whatever that's going on, right? Like come smell the roses or whatever, or it's got something that is just informational, you know, like, hey, we've got a brand new product, blah, 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 blah. Here's what it is, that kind of thing. Those things are not going to really help you develop a community as much as it feels like it's more of a broadcast, right? Like you're just putting information out there and most of it is just bouncing right off the recipient. Is that fair? That's so fair to say. Yes. And like I said, we are emotional beings, right? This is, so people say, well, this isn't, this isn't the same for B2B. Yes, it is because there's still a person or group of people sometimes in the B2B landscape making that buying decision on the other side of the screen. We're still humans selling to humans. And so if there's a human involved, 
then there needs to be emotions involved, which we've decided we don't want to get in touch with or use in our content for some reason. So the solution to these problems, you've kind of hinted a little bit with the self-disclosure thing. How ought we as marketers, as social community people, as you know, people that are active on the social platforms creating content, how should we go about creating content that does build strong connections? Tell me more. So we need to get more in line with content that helps either solicit, meaning asking for from our audience or giving out from the brand, opinions and feelings. So we tell you how we feel as a brand about a certain thing, even if it's something trivial. We don't have to get crazy, but we also give you our feelings. And then we're also soliciting that information back from you because, again, going to the psychology of consumerism, if you feel like you have buy-in, let's say I'm a pin company, and I put out a poll on LinkedIn that says, hey, we're going into production with our next pin. Should we go into production with pink or green? You vote, and whatever you vote on the most, that's the pin we'll go into production with. If most people pick pink, and then you put out a pink pin, the people who voted for pink are like several times more likely to buy the pin because they felt like they were a piece of that. It's a sense of belonging. When we talk about community, that's how you start to build that sense of belonging. You include people in your marketing plan. This is interesting because... I heard you say that you create content that either solicits feedback or you give your opinions on certain things. I know a lot of people are really scared about giving their opinions on things, but I really think a lot of people are not as scared to ask, how do you feel about X, right? Yes. And we do this a lot at Social Media Examiner with a lot of our content. So for example, I believe we did this, but if we didn't, if I was in control of social, which I'm not, I have people that work for me. I would have done this, but I'll give you an example. Adam Masari, who's the CEO of Instagram, did a TED Talk. And in his TED Talk, he talked about a future where um, social marketing um, companies will no longer be in control. And he talked about a future where creators are going to be more in control. And he talked about this whole Web3 concept. It was very counterintuitive to the kinds of things you would have expected to come out of the lips of the CEO of Instagram, right? So if I was to post something like this, I would say something like, what do you think about Adam Masari's TED Talk about the future of social platforms? And then maybe in the comments after the dialogue got going, I might say something like, this seems very counterintuitive to the talking points that come from Facebook directly. You know what I mean? So I'm giving my opinion, right? Uh, but, but not immediately because I want that thread to happen, right? And I know if I did that, I would have had people saying, I haven't seen it yet. What did he say? I might give a summary of what he said. And some people would say, I couldn't believe he said that. Da, 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 da. Is this the kind of stuff that we're talking about? Yes. And I love this example so much because, listen, I'm going to say something that might blow some of your minds right now, but community, if that is your goal, right? If that's your brand's goal and you're trying to get to community, community does not happen in content. Community happens in the conversation. It happens in that back and forth that you just gave the example of. And when you go through and you say, I think this is counterintuitive, I don't align, the people who also don't align, therefore will align more with you and align more with your brand. Does that make sense? Totally. And in my case, I would say I do align, but I think a lot of people at Facebook probably don't align because it, <laughs> it feels as if he's 
you know, and I would go down all these rabbit trails. I wonder if this is the beginning of the end of Instagram and Facebook collaborating together, you know, and I would ask these kinds of questions, right? Because, you know, I know my community is very interested in Instagram and anything that's going on at Instagram. Dot, 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 dot. Did you know that we can deliver awesome marketing info directly into your inbox? Simply subscribe to our weekly newsletter that comes out three days a week. You won't miss any of the updates going on in the world of social marketing. Visit socialmediaexaminer.com slash get updates. So this is where it can get kind of fascinating. You as the brand can solicit the feedback, but you don't have to give your opinion necessarily. You can, but you don't have to, which I think is fascinating because, you know, from my perspective, when I get a chance to see what people's opinions are on this, you know, that's where it gets really interesting, right? Because you'll see that there's a divide sometimes amongst the commentary, right? Oh, yeah. Especially in our industry, there's a lot of divides happening, right? Right. So getting back to this feelings-based content, you know, let's, I mean, this is something you and I talked about when we were preparing for this. What is feelings-based content? Like, let's describe what this is, right? Because I am not a feelings-based person. That's okay. (laughs) I'm more of a logical person. So what does it mean to have feelings-based content? Because I think that's really what you're advocating here, right? Yeah. And I mean, there's a light way you can go about this and a fun way that you can go about this. When we think of feelings, right? Especially when we, we think of like marketing and sales, we think the feelings end at like happy or sad. But think of all the emotions that you go through as a consumer, right? Because we know based on research that more and more consumers are going to social media. They're looking at the reviews. They're looking at these conversations that are happening between the brand and its community or audiences. And they're deciding whether or not they align with the brand. So the feelings that you can use, again, going back to what consumers feel, what do you feel when you're going to buy something? You feel anticipation. You feel excitement. You feel love, you feel hate. There's a lot of different feelings that we feel as consumers. So I think it's smart for brands to start to understand what are some of those feelings that their potential customers are having and what are those feelings that their customers are having and then start to ask some of those questions. The beautiful thing about social media, it's like the world's largest focus group, only it's way less time intensive, way less money and way less biased than traditional focus groups. So if you can start to look at social media as your playground, as your place to test, as your place to have these conversations about opinions and feelings, including your own, you can start to then bring all of that voice of customer data in-house and make better data-driven decisions with your social media and your marketing. So feelings content, let's just say it is in an easy way, Maybe something like B2B marketing on LinkedIn. If you're on LinkedIn, they they do a great job of using feelings and opinions content. You mean the company LinkedIn in particular? Yes. Okay. Yeah. They do a, a fantastic job. And one of the examples I think I gave in the book, I might get the exact statement wrong, but it was like, we've reduced the budget, period. Name another marketing horror story in four words or less, huh. right? Okay. This is research. Think about who LinkedIn as a company is. They had hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds of responses. It's LinkedIn. They can see who these people are leaving these responses, right? But it's also bringing voice of the customer data back to LinkedIn. They now know through hundreds of comments, what are the top fears that people are currently facing with B2B marketing. And then what will they probably do if they're smart, which we know they are, 
they'll turn around and they'll put out content related to those opinions and feelings that their audience gave them on that question. Fascinating. I want to talk a little bit about, it's one thing to solicit feedback. It's another thing to give an opinion. And there's a lot of businesses that are very concerned about giving an opinion because they know if they give an opinion that they're going to potentially alienate a section of their audience. Yes. And you and I talked about risky and non-risky ways to do this. So let's talk about this a little bit because, you know, I think everybody can get on board with soliciting feedback. That feels very easy. But there is this next level that we're talking about, which you've been referring to as self-disclosure, right? Where you're going to share something that is a feelings-based thing. How do we go about doing this? Talk to me about the risky and the non-risky opinions and how to use them in social marketing content. Absolutely. Well, so the first thing I want to say is that dissolution is a good thing. I feel like as marketers, you know, I'm going to break your brain again here, but I feel like as marketers, we're taught that we have to just keep growing. We have to keep growing that follower base. We have to increase followers. We have to increase, increase, increase. And I'm here to tell you that in my opinion, dissolution, when someone unfollows your brand or disconnects with your brand is a good thing because the more people you have who are aligned with your brand and your core values and theirs will become more loyal and will buy from you more. So you're just removing the noise. You're removing the bramble on the path, if you will, to purchase when you connect more with people who are more aligned with you, which is why feelings content is so important. And I've given you a couple of non-risky examples, but I'll give you a couple of riskier examples. Wait, actually, I don't know if anybody connected with the non-risky examples. Maybe you could tell us the non-risky examples again. Non-risky ways to give your opinion. There's a lot of brands right now who are connected with a lot of the social causes that are going on. Currently in America right now, it's Pride Month. You'll see a lot of brands putting out Pride content changing their banners, changing their logos, talking about the programs that they have that support their LBGTQ community within that company. That's not risky. Some people might call it risky, but it's not if the brand truly is aligned with, say, pride. If they have programs in place, if that's something that they do inherently at the company as a program or CSR, corporate social responsibility, that makes sense. And it's not risky because that's something that the brand has already aligned itself with for a longer period of time. So that would be non-risky feelings content. Love is love. You know, a post as simple as that, or we believe in love is love. A simple post like that is a feeling piece of content from the brand that's giving out those brand values. And hopefully their audience or the audience that does align with that will become closer to the brand and share some of those feelings back. Okay. I like that one. I would love to get another one maybe that isn't necessarily related to like social issues. Are there any other examples of non-risky things that are not social? Only because for some companies, social issues are always risky. You know what I mean? For some businesses, yeah. So ProFlowers, let's use ProFlowers again. They put out a post recently that says, and this is could be a considered opinion content, could also be considered feeling content, but the, the post itself was unpopular opinion, we love carnations. We think they're absolutely gorgeous, right? So carnations, you know, kind of poo-pooed on is like the lower flower in the flower world. So they gave this opinion and or feeling because they use the word love, right? We love carnations. And of course they do. They're a flower brand. It aligns nicely with their, with I'm sure their brand values, no flower left behind or whatever those values are. And then people shared opinions back. There were a lot of people who aligned with that and said, hey, I love carnations. They're great. Da, 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 da. 
And then there were some people who wrote back and shared their feelings and said, absolutely not. I hate carnations. They're so ugly. They're worthless, right? So they're still gathering that voice of customer data based on this opinion slash feeling post they put out. And they didn't even ask for opinions and feelings back, but they got them. You know, another example, I'm thinking we have this statement on our website that says, we believe that with smart marketing, you can compete with the largest players in your industry. So indirectly, what we're really saying is we're for the small guys. And if we were to post on social platforms, we could say like power to small business, you know what I mean? Or like if it's small business month, let's just say there is such a thing, right? Then then we could say, hey, you know, virtual holding up a glass of wine to all the small businesses out there struggling to make it through the, the pandemic or even the recession, right? That's kind of standing for a very specific group. Um, we're, we're saying, we're not saying, Hey, you bigger businesses were opposed <laughs> to you, but we are drawing attention to a very specific niche that we are trying to attract. Would that be a non-risky kind of content? Okay. You could say something like we love small businesses and then parentheses, I guess you big guys are okay too. You know? Yeah. yeah, yeah. And that is going to strike me right away. I'm going to stop my little doom scrolling. I'm going to read that. I'm going to smash the like button, right? Because I'm a small business and you're telling me like, hey, Brooke, I'm with you and you're for me and I'm for you. And that's exactly what I'm saying more brands need to do. And by doing that, we're going to get comments that say, well, I'm a big business, da, 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 da. You know what I mean? And I get it. And like sometimes we post Web3 related content because obviously we're working on building out a content related to NFTs and all that stuff. And we've got plenty of people that are so ridiculously opposed to it. It's clearly not for everyone. And I'm tracking with you. I understand the non-risky stuff. So let's talk about the riskier stuff. Okay. Because everybody probably is very scared to do the risky stuff. Let's give some examples of, of risky. And then we can talk about like why it might be advantageous. I'll put a little asterisk here and just be like the disclaimer, disclaimer, do not try this at home. The two examples I'm about to give are very large brands. And the reason why I'm giving these examples is because they have a ton of input. They took a ton of that voice of customer data, analyzed it, and decided to make these decisions before they ever did that. So this is not something I want you to take lightly. If you do decide to be risky or take a stand as a brand, I think it's good because research is showing, I think the latest research that came out, I want to say it was Forrester or it might have been McKinsey, but anyhow, over 70% of consumers are looking for brands to take a stand. And that's especially true in the, in the younger generation. So if you want to take a stand, do it. But the big disclaimer is at your own risk. Make sure you have plenty of inputs before you give the output. So the first one is uh, Patagonia. Outdoor apparel brand, you're probably familiar. Their audience is likely made up of people who wear outdoor apparel, who are very into sports, nature, the outdoors. They put out a post on LinkedIn, it was probably about eight months ago now, that said that they have decided to stop advertising with Facebook, specifically because of Facebook's propensity to spread misinformation about climate change, because Patagonia and one of their brand values is to support climate action, climate change. And this isn't that far-fetched to think that their audience, their consumers, probably also support climate action and climate change because they're outdoorsy people, right? So that it, it's not that risky when you think about it inherently that they made this statement, but it was a bold statement and they've continued to stand by it. They've made updates to this post saying, hey, we're still not going to advertise with Facebook because Facebook doesn't support climate change the way we do. 
right? They took a stand. Well, and they also, I have some Patagonia clothes just because I'm a hiker and I love their stuff. They also are careful about creating stuff that lasts. You know what I mean? And sustainable. Sustainability mm-hmm. is a really big thing for them. So, so this kind of aligns perfectly with their brand, right? Like they don't want to align with anything that is counter to what their brand is. And fascinatingly enough, they were advertising on Facebook, right? So there was a point where they obviously decided to compromise that, or maybe they were just unaware of some of the stuff that was going on with Facebook or ignorant of it. And they finally realized, nope, we're not going to do that. And therefore they chose not to. Now by choosing not to advertise on Facebook, they're kind of making an enemy out of a big social platform, right? And they probably had a lot of arrows coming at him as my guess, you know? Yes. <laughs> so that's the downside to something like that. That's the risky part, right? And what also could have happened, I mean, I don't know, I don't work for Patagonia. They're not one of our clients. So it was just a, an outside looking in case study. But one of the other things that's interesting is they could have had their community come to them and say, hey, I see you running Facebook ads and we all know Facebook isn't great with you know climate action, climate support. What are you going to do about it? They could have gotten pressured into that. But but again, knowing your brand values is so important because that was a real easy leap for Patagonia to make, to make that big statement and to pull out of Facebook advertising. Awesome. You got another example? Yes. So my next example is a little more of a leap, a little more risky. And it's when Nike decided to partner with Colin Kaepernick for their big campaign, Just Do It campaign. And Nike has historically supported athletes and supported inclusivity with their brand. So it's not that far of a leap, but because specifically Colin Kaepernick at the time was kind of the leading forefront with kneeling during the anthem to protest brutality against Black people and, and the police, right? So it was a, it's a more of a risky leap. And what we saw in the news as marketers was people burning their Nikes. So we all kind of sat back and said, "Woo, Nike made a big mistake there, right? And their stock did dip, I think, within the next couple of weeks, about 3%. But the real marketing story is that over time, stocks skyrocketed and the company has really solidified itself far above its competitors, partly because of this campaign. The people who burned their shoes burned their shoes. But in all likelihood, they know who their audience is. They know that many of them are Black or people of color or support Black Lives Matter or Colin Kaepernick, whatever it may be. And those people obviously bought more and became more loyal because we've seen that their stock prices increased, you know, several folds after this event took place. And they've continued to solidify their place as the top sports brand. It's so intriguing because obviously the the people that are really patriotic to the flag that maybe didn't understand what Colin was doing saw that as something like that Nike was being non-patriotic to America. Yes. Right? Yeah. And that was kind of the challenge and they but they knew what they were doing because they were trying to attract a very specific younger generation that is very much into social action, right? And by doing this, probably a lot of people flocked to Nike as a result of it, which are going to, and they're probably going to stick with Nike for, for a very, very long time. Fascinating examples. I want to talk about if we are to consider getting into doing some of this, you know, some of the things we've been talking about possibly, you know, let's say we've got our values and we know what our values are, but maybe we want to take a stand on an issue, whether it's a social issue or non-social issue, you know, what should we 
be doing to prepare for this? You know, mm-hmm. you, you and I talked about social listening and some other things. I would love to chat about that a little bit. Yeah, I think social listening is one of the most underrated social media marketing tactics out there. It blows my mind that not everyone is using social media listening today because that is where you can collect all of that voice of customer data. And this includes not just the conversations that are happening with your brand, so like when you're tagged on social, but it also includes the wider worldwide web of conversations that are happening on particular keywords and themes and topics that you're trying to follow. So there is literally a fire hose of information coming from social listening that you can use to help collect that voice of customer data, not only for your current customers, but people who are out there talking about some of those keywords that you're interested in in collecting data on. Talk to me about some of the tools that you can use to, to do this. So listen, I say this in the book, but for my thesis, and this was a very, very long time ago, there wasn't social listening. We didn't have tools. So I literally <laughs> had a spreadsheet where I would code every piece of content that went out from the brand and then code every single piece of incoming content to the brand. So I mean, technically, you could use a spreadsheet, but for your mental sanity, I wouldn't recommend it. If you want a free tool, Google Alerts, you can go into Google Alerts, put your brand name. So for instance, if I went into Google Alerts and I set up an alert for B squared media and I put it in quotations, Google would return any sort of worldwide web information on B squared media. And I actually still have one set up to this day, even though we use social listening. Mention.com, M-E-N-T-I-O-N.com has one free listener. So you could go set up a branded keyword listener with mention and have free results uh, brought back to you. And then there are tons of very expensive and less expensive tools that you can use. I use Sprout Social, uh, Agora Pulse, which I know is connected with SME. They offer social listening at more of that lower level. And then for some of the enterprise-sized brands, Sprinkler is a, a big brand that comes to mind for social listening. So you could literally go from do-it-yourself to free to very expensive. What do we do with the data that we get? What are we looking for? Yeah, that's a great question. So part of what I have coming out with the book is a free social media listening workbook that kind of helps you understand how do I set up my goals for social listening? If it's your first time or you're new to the social listening game, I've got this free workbook coming out. But essentially, you need to understand what are we trying to listen for? What do we want to understand? What's the why? Right. And then based on that question, you can set up your listeners or keywords, keyword phrases to help you then bring data in to your social listening tool. And then you can slice and dice it a million different ways based on that why. Obviously, if you just go out there and try to listen to everything and everyone, it's not going to work. You have to get very specific about what you're trying to prove with your social listening initiatives first. Talk to me about the voice of customer and mirroring language a little bit, because I would imagine we're, even though not everybody's a customer that's commenting on social, there could be some really great nuggets out there, right? Yeah. So a lot of little interesting nuances that we've seen with some of our clients who use social listening is that even though you might have a product name, right? Marketers also have a lot of jargon, right? We, we call things a lot of things and then we call those things jargons. It's terrible, but I'm guilty of it too. What's interesting is once you start to listen to these conversations, again, whether you're tagged or it's happening in the wild, you'll start to see consumers aren't using our language. Surprise, because 
we don't, we, you know, we think we set up everything. We think everything that we do is amazing, but consumers beg to differ sometimes. So you'll see them using different language markers that the brand uses. And what we try to encourage our clients to do is to mirror the language that their customers are using. Because remember, at the end of the day, we're human emotional beings. And we learn, we grow up, and we build our own relationships through mirroring each other. So I'll give you a really quick example. When coronavirus first started happening, I saw I saw you at Social Media Marketing World, and then literally the world shut down like a week or two later. Right. And in the beginning, we were using coronavirus. That's what the media used. That's what consumers were using. But over about a three to six month period, we saw through social listening that the consumer chatter people stopped using coronavirus and started using words like COVID, COVID COVID-19, or the pandemic. And so we brought that information back to our clients and we said, look, if you're sharing information about coronavirus, which many of them were because they were businesses who needed to keep updates going out, you need to use what your consumers are using. Don't say coronavirus because then you sound like the, you know, the meme with um, Steve Buscemi. You sound like the medical doctor. Yeah, it's like, hey kids, what's happening? Yeah, (laughs) you just don't sound right. So you want to look at those conversations that are happening and figure out how to mirror some of that language, especially when you're thinking about those opinion and feelings posts. If your community or audience doesn't use the word love, they use the word intense like. I don't know why they would, but I'm just making this up, <laughs> okay. you know? Sure. Yeah. Then you say we intense like small businesses. Or maybe they just use the emoji a lot instead of using the word. Yes. Right. Same. Yes. Look at that. How many times do they say love versus using a heart? Which heart do they use? I mean, this is so nuanced, but this is how crazy we get with social listening. If they use the purple heart and you're using the pink heart, you better start using the purple heart. Brooke, this has been absolutely fascinating. And there's some listeners right now that would love to grab your new book, Conversations That Connect, and would love to connect with you specifically. Where do you want to send them? Well, for your listeners specifically, we're going to do something awesome. We are going to give you the entire first chapter of the book for free, along with that social media listening workbook that I just talked about. So you can go to bsquared.media, which is our website. The letter B, not B. The letter B. Yes. B as in Brooke. Bsquared media, bsquared.media, and then go to backslash S. M-E for Social Media Examiner. And that's where you'll be able to collect, obviously, information about the book. But we'll give you that first chapter. We'll give you the workbook. We'll give you some things to kind of wet your whistle. And then if you want to buy the book, you can see that there as well. Brooke, if people want to reach out to you on the socials, do you have a preferred platform? Yes. Twitter happens to be my favorite. I know. I'm old. (laughs) Hey, Twitter is hot again. It really is. I love Twitter. It's always been my favorite. Uh, literally, you could go to Google and type in Brooke, B-R-O-O-K-E, Sellis, S-E-L-L-A-S. And as far as I know, I'm the only one out there and you'll be able to see all my social profiles. But Twitter is definitely my favorite if you want to reach out there. So is it just twitter.com slash Brooke Sellis? Yes. Okay, perfect. Well, Brooke, thank you so much for coming on and answering all my questions and providing your amazing insights. We really appreciate it. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited and just appreciate all of the effort that you put into helping me become a success. Hey, if you missed anything, we took all the notes for you over at socialmediaexaminer.com slash 519. If you're new to the show, be sure to follow us. If you've been a longtime listener, would you let your friends know about this show? I'm at Stelzner on Instagram and at Mike underscore Stelzner on Twitter. 
This brings us to the end of yet another episode of this social media marketing podcast. I'm your host, Michael Stelzner. I'll be back with you next week. I hope you make the best out of your day and may social media continue to change your world. The Social Media Marketing Podcast is a production of Social Media Examiner. Want more good stuff? Sign up for our top-notch social marketing newsletter. We deliver it straight into your inbox three days a week. Visit socialmediaexaminer.com slash get updates.